Welcome to Deloitte's second season of Courage Incorporated, produced by the Walrus Lab. Join me as we encourage courageous and powerful leaders from the world of business and public policy who have the important task of directing the future of their organizations, industries, and countries with courage. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. In Canada, this future includes more courage and action to end racial inequality. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed and intensified pre-existing inequities in our country and more broadly highlighted the need for a more equitable society and economic future. Our first guest has been named one of the nation's most influential power brokers by the Globe and Mail and is the first black Canadian dragon on CBC's Dragon's Den. Our guest is a leader in dismantling anti-black racism and creating a more inclusive economy. Through his Black North initiative, nearly 500 leaders of Canadian organizations have expressed a commitment toward advancing the economic empowerment of Black people. As the founder of Kingsdale Advisors, he has led some of the highest profile deals and activist campaigns in North America. Wes Hall joins us today to provide insights on what we need to collectively do to advance equity in our organizations and in our country. Wes, thanks for being here. I've long admired your commitment to creating a more inclusive corporate Canada and tackling systemic anti-Black racism. And I wonder if we could start with your personal journey, starting life in Jamaica, moving to Canada as a teenager, and now to where you are today, head of Kingsdale Advisors, a leading inclusion activist, and a Dragon's Den host. You've navigated a lot of challenge and change from a very young age. Could you share with us how your early experiences shaped your courageous approach to leadership today? And who were the people that inspired you along that journey? Well, Duncan, first of all, uh, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for the wonderful question. Let me say this. I came from a place called uh, St. Thomas, just outside of Kingston. If you actually land in the Sangster Airport and you're going to drive to St. Thomas and you close your eyes as soon as you get out the airport in a taxi, you're going to feel very smooth roads. And then as soon as you get the border to St. Thomas, you're going to feel the difference in the road. And the reason being is because it's the most impoverished part of Jamaica. And you actually literally feel it in the potholes uh, in the road. I think it's the most beautiful part of Jamaica. And I came from this town called Golden Grove, which is right in the middle of the parish. And uh, it's the most amazing place for me to have lived and uh, be raised by my grandmother. And Wes, what kind of what kind of influence did she have on you in terms of of how you've taken some of those early lessons in life and sort of use that in the way that you've evolved your career and, and your passions today? She was very industrious. Uh, that's for sure. She worked in three plantations. She worked in the sugarcane plantation, depending on the season, banana plantation, and the coconut plantation, and. Uh, I have 14 brothers and sisters. She didn't raise all of us, but she raised most of my siblings and also my cousins in a two-bedroom tin shack that was given to her by the plantation owners. And each of the plantation workers are given a place to raise their family. And they call this place the barracks. And the reason why they call it the barracks is because of the impoverished state of the people that actually worked on the barracks. And so the barracks were built on five foot stilts because in the area that those houses were, it's actually prone to flooded. So every time we'll get heavy rain, it would actually go all the way up to the veranda of this place. And I remember sitting down as a kid 
and my feet dangling in the water without a care in the world. But I have a permanent reminder of living in the barracks because if you look at my right forehead here, there's a scar. I was sitting on that veranda and I fell off and hit a rock and I have a permanent reminder of where I came from. I never forget. So that, so I have that picture of that uh, tin shack in my office on Bay Street to physically remind me of where I came from. But this scar that I carry around with me every single day of my life reminds me that that barrack is what made you who you are. Why Canada? Of the places in the world you could go, what was it about Canada that said, this is where I want to be? So when I was uh, a year old, my dad left Jamaica uh, to move to Canada. I didn't know anything about, about Canada. I just, uh, so I was raised by my grandmother in Jamaica. The story is a, a long one, and that's why there's going to be a book coming out to, to, to give it a little bit more detail. But to make a long story short, I went to live with my mom at 11 years old in the city. And after, when I turned 13, my mother said, you know, you're on your own now. And she packed my bags and she threw me out of the house. And so between 13 and 16, I, I lived on my own. And when I was 16 years old, my dad showed up in the picture and he said, I want you to come live with me in Canada. And uh, I didn't really know much about Canada because at the time, this was September 27, 1985, by the way. At the time, everybody wanted to go to New York. Everybody wanted to go to the States. All we knew about uh, Canada in Jamaica was that it's cold and there's a lot of snow and the snow just keeps coming. But to me, that was just an opportunity. I just thought, wow, I get an opportunity to leave Jamaica and to make a life for myself. So when I landed and I got off the plane and I started to walk around the airport and I saw all this beauty and I went to see my, my I got outside in international arrival and I saw my, my dad, which I've never met really. I've met him a few times when I was smaller, younger. And then I saw my siblings, which I've never met. And I saw my stepmom, everybody there waiting to greet West Hall. And then I got in the, this car. The car was called Betsy because it was a really big car. And, uh, and I'm driving on this 401 highway. Could you imagine that? I've never seen anything that big before. I've never seen that many cars in one place, going places and coming from places. And they brought me to Malvern. Now, for those who are listening to this podcast, will hear Malvern and not really know the significance of Malvern. Malvern still is today one of the toughest neighborhoods in the city. And when they brought me to Malvern, Malvern to me was paradise. I was like, wow. And immediately, you Duncan, that from that day on, when I landed in Toronto and got to Malvern, the subdivision was still under construction. I knew that I was going to make something of myself in this country. I just knew it. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. I just knew that after what I left to where I, I came, I could not fail. And I left my dad for only two years. At my senior high school, I moved out. And uh, I've been on my own ever since. But uh, this is really a place of opportunity. And I'm so grateful that I didn't go to New York and the U.S. like my friends did, that I got that opportunity to come to Canada because it was literally and still is the land of opportunity. Well, Wes, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And, and just as an aside, my, my wife grew up in the Jane Finch area, which is 
you know, not exactly the same place, but certainly I, I understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, where you start out and then where do you get to and, you know, how through your own energy, your own hard work, what you can create. So it's an amazing story. And I'm really looking forward to your book, by the way, when it comes out and we can, uh, we can all read no it. No bootstrap when you're barefoot. It's going to be, that's it's the a name fantastic of, uh... title. It's a fantastic title. <laughs> yeah. And, and did you take inspiration of that from Martin Luther King's speech? I was just curious. You know, it's, it's interesting because it's just, it, it came naturally. And uh, one of the reasons why it's so important was because for two reasons. One, I grew up in that tin shack barefoot. We had shoes for two reasons. One is if you're going to a wedding, which we generally don't go to weddings because people don't get married much down there. And two, if you're going to church. Okay. And so, um, my grandmother used to send us to the river to bathe, to go to church. And then we'd have a barrel where all the clothes are good clothes are in. And everybody knows when you go into the barrel, you're going someplace special. So we went to the barrel and she would pull out my nice black shoes and it would have newspapers stuck in it because they're so big. And, uh, and I would put it on and then we'd go to church. But aside from that, we didn't wear uh, shoes to go to, to play with our friends or to go to school. That's a luxury. So we did all that stuff barefoot. And so that reminds me of that time when I was running around the barracks with no shoes on. But it also reminds me of when I started Kingsdale and I had no money to bootstrap my company because nobody would help me. Right. And it's the same thing that a lot of black business uh, entrepreneurs go through today, whereby they just can't get enough capital to start a business. So it's hard to get bootstrap when you have no shoes. And so that's where the title kind of comes from. Oh, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. If, if we just sort of shift our conversation a bit, a recent survey of black Canadians that came out at the end of 2020 indicated 83% that they'd been treated unfairly, whether in their professional life, their personal life, both. As you built your 30-year career on Bay Street, What's been your personal experience with discrimination and injustice and how has it influenced your establishment of the Black North Initiative to end systemic anti-Black racism with a business first mindset? So I'm in the, the process of writing a book and, and today one of the paragraphs I just put into the book was after detailing my successes and the different bosses I've had and challenges that I've had with those bosses, I said, you know, um, I felt, and I used to say this to my wife, I really feel sorry for my bosses. And I felt sorry for them because I was a young black man with a chip on my shoulder trying to prove everybody wrong. And, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it's a tough place to be when you're managing someone who goes, I'm proving everybody wrong because they're going to make your life miserable, even though you're the boss. And I've made my, I think I've made a number of bosses lives miserable. And I chalked it up to exactly that. You know, I was young because when I started on Bay Street, I was in my 20s, early 20s, uh, mid-20s rather. And I was impatient. I wanted to get, I wanted to show that I'm the best and I wanted to get it sooner. I want to show everybody that you can't lose betting on me. And that could grind on people. Because uh, you just keep going and going like the Energizer Bunny. And that's what I was doing all the time. I would look back at today in hindsight and go, when somebody said to me, for example, I remember was, I was in the, in the mailroom 
and I wanted to be a law clerk, but they promoted me to become a records clerk in that same department where all the law clerks were. And, uh, and the person, when I told them that my next, you know, move is to be a law clerk, she, the head of the department said, you'll never be a law clerk in this department. But yet the person who I took over from was promoted to become a law clerk. So automatically I just looked at the department makeup and I go, oh, there, there are no guys in this department. It's all women. So the only reason why she wouldn't hire me as a law clerk is because they're not looking for men in the department. I never really say it's because I'm black. I just felt that, okay, we're going to, I'm not going to get it because I'm a dude. And, uh, and as a result of that, let me go apply someplace else. Had I used my race as a reason for me in my mind, not getting that opportunity to be told that I wouldn't get the opportunity, I probably would be stuck there. I'd be angry. I'd be looking for reasons to not move ahead. But I used other reasons. So as I look through my career back now, there were lots of instances where something happened to me because I was black. But I've always used another reason for that thing to happen to me. It's always, oh, he didn't like my pink shirt. Uh, oh, he didn't like the way that I, I used that expression. Oh, the client didn't just didn't like the advice that I gave them, right? But I've never said, well, I didn't do it. It didn't happen because I'm black. And as I progress on Bay Street, it becomes a little bit more apparent. And the reason why it became a little bit more apparent was because I constantly go into situations where I'm the only black person, right? So you get into a meeting, you're the only black person. You're on an advisory group with like 15 different advisors. You're the only black person. So it's become very, very apparent over time. And as a result of that, I used the, uh, the situation that happened with George Floyd and people's uh, awareness of issues with respect to social justice to say, okay, let's admit that there's a problem. Let's admit that if we look in, in our organization, especially at the top and there are no black people there, let's admit that we're not saying you're somebody's racist because that happens. Let's just say that there's a systemic reason for it. And let's acknowledge that first and let's just do something about it. And um, I encourage those leaders to sign a pledge, which over 500 of them decided that they would do that, to actually look at their own organization, essentially look in the mirror at themselves. And uh, if they recognize the fact that there are changes needed, make those changes and work collectively to make those changes. And uh, it's easy for someone to criticize people it's a lot harder to come up with solutions to problems that we're criticizing people about. And so when I decided to start the Black North Initiative, it's not a way to criticize. It's a way to come up with solutions to the problems that we've seen. As the Black North Initiative has continued to progress, what changes are you seeing coming into corporate Canada now in early 2022 compared to when you began it? And what are the next steps that you think your organizational partners really need to take on? You know, Duncan, I think there's a lot of work to be done still. And uh, the stats are, uh, are still pretty poor in terms of uh, changes. However, let me say this. Uh, a lot of people have good intentions. And I know that we need more than just good intentions, but we need that to start. Because if you don't have good intentions to start, you're not going to get anywhere. So most people, I would say... 70% of the people who have signed the pledge signed it with the intent 
to do something. Now, like anything in life, I could have the intent that, uh, you know, I'm going to travel. I'm going to go someplace nice. I'm going to do something nice for my wife. And because I got busy, I forget. And that great intention that I have to do something so nice for my wife, take her on a nice vacation or take her to a nice restaurant. I forget. It doesn't really mean that I don't love my wife or that I didn't have good intentions. It just meant that other things came in the way that took my priority and took my attention away. And that's really what happens when you're a CEO of a company. You're fighting fires every single day, every single day. So you may have signed something to commit three years ago and something more important came up and you may have to put that in the back burner and focus on those other things. So what we've done with respect to Black North is to, in terms of those people who have the good intention and we recognize the fact that they have busy lives, busy work lives, busy family lives, that they may get distracted every now and then. So why don't we work with you so that we can help you to make the changes so that you don't have to worry about being distracted from this important work. So what we've done at Black North is we created a racial equity playbook. It's a playbook whereby we give, gave a roadmap to all those organizations that have signed the pledge to say, these, this is the step-by-step approach that you need to take to change the conversation within your organization and not leaving it to chance. So if I have great intentions to do something for my wife, like take her on a nice vacation or dinner, I generally just put it in my calendar. Okay. If I don't put it in my calendar, it may not be as, you know, it may not be as important as I think it is to me. But once I put it in my calendar, somebody or something is going to remind me that something special should be happening tonight. Right. And so that racial equity playbook that we put together is permanently in the calendar of those organizations so that those things that they commit to, it can be part of the DNA of the organization. Well, and, and Wes, as, as you know, Deloitte is one of the organizations that signed up to be a part of it. And I don't believe that, that we're perfect by any yeah. means, but we do take it seriously. We do take the commitment seriously. And we did recently put out our own Black and Canada report that focused on examining and addressing anti-Black racism yeah. in Canadian workplaces. And in that report, you said that to address the problem of systemic racism in our country, we need to also solve for the very real problem of economic empowerment in the Black community. Can you elaborate on how economic opportunity is so foundational to a more equitable society? You know, so um, I look at my own example. I, when I did all this great work on Bay Street, at least I thought I did, and I was getting a lot of pushback and problems along the way. And I recognize the fact that only way for me to get as far as I possibly can with the talent that I think I have is if I set up my own company. And, uh, and so I said, okay, I'm going to leave this job. I was a vice president. I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to set up Kingsdale Advisors and I'm going to build it differently. I got all these great ideas. I have a great business plan and I pitched it with every single institution in this country. And every single one of them turned me down. They gave me all kinds of different reasons, right? We don't believe in the business. We don't believe in you. Uh, we don't believe in uh, just all kinds of different reasons. Until Duncan, I went into one of the banks. It was at the time when the banks had all these tellers in Commerce Court on the main level. 
and I saw a black man behind a desk. His name is Lancelot Day. And I, and I went over to him and I pitched him on my business plan. And he looked at it and he goes, wow, this is, uh, I like it. Come back and see me in a week. And even though I had a house, something to leverage, I still was turned down by the traditional institutions, right? But he said, and the reason why they turned me down was, well, what if this business doesn't work? You're going to owe us all this money and then we're going to have to get your house. We don't want to do that. So we're not going to bother. But Len said to me, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. I'll get inside and, and I'll make it work inside. And he made it work inside. And he gave me $100,000 against my house. $100,000. Now we have 1,500 people or so working for my organizations. Uh, we have those people paying mortgages, sending their kids to private and public schools. We're creating the Canadian dream for so many people as a result of getting $100,000. Not only did I create economic independent for myself, but I created it for hundreds of people. A number of people that have worked with me over the years have gone on to start their own companies, creating wealth for themselves and others. Uh, so economic empowerment is really critical because it allowed me to live the lifestyle that I have. It allowed me to help others live the lifestyle that they have today. It helps me to educate my kids and give them higher education, to give them confidence, to be able to do good things or great things in the future. It allows me to provide philanthropic support of hospitals, universities, not only in this country, but other parts of the world, help kids that are in need. And so economic empowerment is not just about give this man a job. It's about giving this person opportunity. And if you do, you can change the world with it. And so one of the secrets to my success after starting Kingsdale and became uh, the, the brand that uh, became, I was getting people knocking on the door because they started hearing about this rich black man, okay? And they would come and they would say, Mr. Hall, I can't get money anywhere to start my company or start my business. And I have this great idea. Can you help me out? And I started to invest in BIPOC businesses years and years ago. And that made me even wealthier than I thought I'd ever be. Why? Because I was able to tap into a market that nobody was paying attention to because I was a part of that market. When people can't get opportunities, they can spot other people who are as hungry as they were. So I can tell you, I can spot a hungry BIPOC entrepreneurs better than anyone, anyone who claim that they're set up in an institution to find BIPOC people. I can spot them. I can smell them. I can sense their desire. I can pick them out of a crowd like that because I was in that crowd and I was waiting for someone like me to spot me and give me an opportunity. Listen, in a few years, Toronto is already mostly BIPOC, okay? Canada will be in like short few years. If we don't create opportunities for all those people, when majority of our population, a third of our population is going to be from that community, what's our future going to look like? And you know, Wes, I know one of the, the platforms you're now a part of is Dragon's Den, which is a, a show I enjoy a lot. Good. I remember a particular um, person who came on and she was talking about a soup business that she was trying to create and all the different recipes that she had. 
And I love the way you sort of spent time talking with her about, look, here's all the things I want to try to do for you. And it was a much broader conversation than just the money you were going to make out of soup, although obviously that's the ambition, but it was everything you just expressed in terms of, you know, the mentorship, the, the support, the vision, the opportunity, and a holistic way of thinking about what you were, were trying to bring to that. And I'm just curious when the, the opportunity to do Dragon's Den came along, how does that role as a dragon connect with this yeah. commitment and advancing economic empowerment? And has it done more to sort of help in the things you're wanting to do for uh, the BIPOC community? Well, good, good question, Duncan. Um, it's super. Yeah, that's the name of the uh, the brand. And uh, uh, it was just amazing entrepreneur. And uh, and it's like an African woman entrepreneur. Right. Uh, first of all, the black women are amazing business people when they're given an opportunity. That I know because I watched my grandmother and I watched the way that she worked. I watched all these women in our neighborhood. Most of them were the breadwinners, right? If you look in the black community as well, most of them are the breadwinners that work hard. And the other thing is too, if you see a black man fooling around on the street, kid, and you say, I'm going to call your mother or your grandmother, guess what happens? They straighten up. Okay. Because they know that grandmother and mom doesn't mess around and it doesn't matter how old that kid is or how big that man is. You say, I'm going to talk to your mother and they listen. Why? Because they command a certain respect and attention. And so when they put their minds to saying, I'm going to work hard and make something happen, I am going to back them and I'm going to give them the support that they need because I know my money is safe with them. So with Dragon's Den, I've, uh, you know, Duncan in my life, I'm fortunate enough that I love to get out of my comfort zone. Because if you don't ever get out of your comfort zone, how are you going to know what you're really good at? Right? A lot of people go, it's, it's, I'm not saying I went to medical school and I want to be a doctor and I decided, you know what, I'm going to be something else. Some people do that. But for the most part, all of us have this amazing hidden talent. And when we get an opportunity to do something different, we go, no, I'm not going to do that. It's too scary. And as a result of that, we don't know that we could be amazing at whatever. And so Dragons then, when they called me and said, listen, Wes, um, we want you to be on Dragon's Den. I could have responded this way. Oh, wow, CBC, it's uh, 2020 and all of a sudden people are talking about black people. And finally you realize that you should have a black person on your show after 16 seasons, <laughs> right? No, I don't want to be the first. I could have said that. I could have been that skeptical. But the fact is the call was made to begin with. And I don't care when or why. The fact of the matter is that I now have an opportunity to show everyone that they've been missing something for 16 seasons. Okay. And that was somebody that looked like me. And it's my opportunity to now, based on my performance on the show, to represent people who look like me and to let other people who are withholding opportunities for people that look like me because of fear fear of failure, or whatever the case may be, that it's okay to bet on us. We're going to be making you money. See, the thing about the broadcast business is it's a money business. They're not doing it because they're nice and they're saying, oh, we want a black person on the show because it's just a nice thing to do. Of course, they want a black person, but they want a black person who's going to increase their ratings, who's going to bring advertising dollars, who's going to put on a good show, right? 
and are good and capable. That's what they're looking for. So who am I to say when they identify me as that person to say, no, no, I'm not interested, right? Who else? It's not me. 16 seasons, we haven't had a black person on the show. Okay. Is it a burden for me to represent my community? Absolutely not. Because there's a lot of black folks who are, who are fans of the show. Right? And as soon as I got announced, I got all these emails and texts and uh, stopping on the street from black folks saying, finally, finally. Right. And now I, you know, I have two things to do when I'm on the show. It's to now encourage diversity in terms of the people pitching, the entrepreneurs coming to encourage that. And B, to encourage those people watching the show, their fans of the show to go, it's possible for them to actually be a dragon on the show. And nothing is stopping them from doing it except for their ability. Okay. And so everything I've done in my life, if my ability doesn't allow me to be successful at it, I think I should be fired from it. And I think I should be prevented from doing it because somebody says, you're not capable. You're not qualified, right? A lot of people say about blacks, you know, it's tokenism or so on. Yes, tokenism may get you through the door, but your talent is going to keep you there, right? So I don't care why you hired me because if there's no black person in the room before, the reason why I wasn't there was because I'm black. Now I'm there. You're saying the reason why I'm there is because I'm black. Which one do you want, Right? As long as I'm in the room, now that I'm there, I now can prove to people why it's been a mistake to not have me there in the first place. And now it opens the door for so many others to come in after me. And Wes, you know, tied, tied to that, you've spoken about it earlier, but I know that education is really important to you and, and that I know you've been doing partnerships with organizations like the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and their development of the Black North Academy and courses that you're personally involved in teaching around entrepreneurship and leadership. Can you tell us a bit more about these programs and what you hope students are going to gain from these courses in terms of that, that courage to step out of their comfort zone and that courage to sort of take on new opportunity? Well, we didn't know how the Rotman's course would go because, um, you know, I, I, they came to us with the idea to say we would like to encourage Black students in particular and they ask if I wanted to participate. Again, I've never, most things that I've done, I've never done them before. I've never taught a course uh, before. But we decided to put an outline together. And I wanted to give, a part of the outline is that we want to show the history of Black entrepreneurship. And I went all the way back to Madame C.J. Walker. Here's a woman that was born in the 1900s. And uh, she was, she became one of the richest woman in the country, black woman. She used to wash clothes. And then she decided to do this thing about hair. And, uh, and she became wildly successful at it, extremely successful at it. But yet she had all these obstacles in her way and she never let them stop her from achieving her dreams. Black people were hating on her. White folks were hating on her. Everybody was, and then she just became successful and, you know, and, you know, to her wildest dreams and everybody else around her. And she became the neighbor of the Rockefellers, you know, could imagine that, you know, there she is, this black woman and like, and, and, and the Rockefellers are a neighbor and it didn't even phase her. Right. And so I start to talk about that. I talk about modern day 
entrepreneurs like Michael Lee Chen. I talked about Viola Desmond and her journey. And I showed folks that entrepreneurialism is not a straight line to success. There's going to be peaks and valleys. And uh, there's going to be times when people just doubt themselves and how do they work their way through that. So now for these young people who are going to school, most people don't go, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. They generally go, I'm going to work for someone. And I want those people to have within them, those young folks that are in university, to have the desire to be an entrepreneur. But instead of saying that I'm not going to do that because Black people aren't entrepreneurs, I'm saying, yeah, Black people have always been entrepreneurs. Okay? And they've always had obstacles. But guess what? Every single entrepreneur has obstacles. Every single one of them. Okay? And it's how they deal with those obstacles that made them successful or not successful. You know, on Dragon's Den, they always say to people, you know, sometimes, and I hate this expression when they use it, and I give them a hard time on the show, the dragons, you're not an entrepreneur. Like, who are you to tell someone they're not an entrepreneur? Who are you? Maybe they're not as successful as an entrepreneur as you are, but anyone who have the guts to put everything aside and go for their dreams and set up a company and try to make it work, that's an entrepreneur. And that person should be celebrated, celebrated. And uh, unfortunately, because the success isn't behind them yet, they tend to go, no, you're not an entrepreneur, right? If you tell anyone, Steve Jobs, when he was going at this thing, Bill Gates, when he was going at the computer, there's a lot of people saying, Bill, you're doing this thing in your garage, man. You're not an entrepreneur. You need to, you know, but guess what? He didn't listen to those, those naysayers and he kept going. And then all of a sudden, those, those same naysayers are saying, man, Bill was lucky. No, Bill wasn't lucky. Bill just didn't listen to you. And uh, so we have to figure out who we're going to listen to on our journey, who we're going to take advice from on our journey. So my job, when I talk to entrepreneurs, especially young people, young but in entrepreneurs, is to encourage them and also to, to be realistic. And there's times when you got to pull the plug and they have to know when those times are. And nobody can tell you when. You are the only person who can tell yourself when it's time to pull the plug or keep calling. First of all, I completely agree with you. And, and there's no question that as a country of Canada, when you say country is a great country of opportunity, I agree with that. I also believe that we've got to do more to help our entrepreneurs in Canada, A, to be successful. And we also need to encourage more of them to do exactly what you've done, which is to stay here. Stay here. And keep building businesses and building this ecosystem of the next generation of entrepreneurs. Over the years, different leaders have done amazing things. You're doing amazing things right now and what you're doing. Any thoughts about what more corporate Canada and government could do to sort of help the entrepreneurial community to be successful here, to stay here? Is it more taking the risk to be first customer? What are some of the things we should be doing? Well, you know, I remember when I started. So I started Kingsdale 2003. We've never not been profitable, thank God. And uh, however, I remember the first year, the big check I wrote to CRA and I didn't get a thank you. I didn't get a uh, well done, attaboy, keep going, right? Uh, but I can tell you if year two, I fell flat on my face, I wouldn't be able to go and get any capital from the government to say, okay, give me some of that money back so I could keep going, right? And so the support never comes for small businesses, never comes. 
And uh, uh, fortunately, in some cases uh, with COVID, they recognize the fact that there are so many small businesses that they had to do something to help some of those businesses. Uh, the fact of the matter is that small businesses are the backbone of our economy because most, if not all those big businesses today were small businesses at one point, okay? And look at Kingsdale. I was employee number one. I was one employee. And, uh, and could you imagine if there was a system set up by the government and we have the business belt bank and so on, but are they really set up to understand small businesses and support small businesses and work with small businesses when they're in their times of need? That first five years for a small business, business owner is very tough. How many times have we heard people have to go into their credit card and uh, they have debt collectors chasing them down and so on? Could you imagine if we uh, almost set up a fund to give an assurance to those businesses that during that period of time, you know, we're going to be helping you and we're going to look after you, right? We're going to defer some taxes and make sure that we collect them later on. Some of those things that we do when we're in trouble, right? What happens with the banks in the pandemic, for example, for people who owe them money? The good business is what they were saying, defer your payment. Because they knew, hopefully, if we do that, it's going to help them. And it's going to keep them alive longer. Why do we have to wait for difficult moments like those that affects everyone before we decide we're just going to offer that solution to the best ones? The best ones don't need it, right? Because the best ones tend to have a lot of money saved up. They save for a rainy day. The ones that are struggling, the ones that are purely on the, you know, make, trying to make it work are the ones who need it the most and yet they don't get it, right? When I started Kingsdale, as I said, I couldn't get capital. Once I started to make a lot of money, I could get capital from everybody. Yet I didn't need it. But yet there are businesses that are they're at the same level Kingsdale was that just can't get that same capital. So we don't really even distribute wealth in this country. And we need to start thinking about as businesses, how we can even, like banks in particular, how can we evenly distribute wealth in this country? And government, how can we evenly make sure that people have access to the tools that they need to, to be successful? I was reading about another business that you have uh, in the environmental space, uh, QM Environmental, it's a, a leading environment and industrial services firm. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us more about it and, and how you see a company that's focusing on what is another critical issue of our time around climate and the environment aligns with the different businesses you've supported that you've invested in over the years. Interesting you mentioned that, uh, Duncan, because there's a history behind QM. I bought QM bought uh, four years ago. Uh, four or five years ago, when I bought the business, the business was losing $20 million a year. And uh, I went to my bank at the time, and I thought it was a pretty decent customer at the bank. And I said, listen, I want to buy this company and I want to get some, put some leverage on it. And they looked at the business and looked at me and they said, no, this is not your space. We're not going to do it. And uh, they turned me down and they had my money. So I decided that, okay, what about this idea? Why don't I take my money that you have, some of it, and just buy this business for cash. And that's what I did. And uh, this business today, as you indicated, is the leading environmental services firm in the country. We have 750 employees working 
for us. And the company, cash flow positive, EBITDA positive, it's one of the best in the industry today. Because I believed in the business, I am an entrepreneur. My job is to go in there, see what's pro- what the problem is w- with the business and fix it. I, when you think about what I do for a living, I work for activist investors. And what do activist investors do? They look at a company who is a good company. Activist investors don't go after bad companies. They go after good companies that have bad management. And then they fix the management, turn the company around and they make a zillion dollars doing it. That's how Bill Ackman, Bear Rosenstein, Chris Hahn, all Carl Icahn, all these people that we, that are on the billionaires list. They don't go after good companies. They go after good companies with bad management. And then they get rid of the people who are bad and put good people in and watch them like a hawk get a return on their investment and they move on to the next bad management. That's what they do. So when I identify a bad managed company, how could you lose money in the environmental services business? How could you? <laughs> I don't get it. We're talking every time we get up in the morning, environment, 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 we see all the, the, the problems, we see it all, but we're, the company was losing $20 million a year. How could that be? They should be printing money. And, uh, you know, so when I identified that and wasn't able to sell that institution and supported me, that's bad management at that institution. And if they're turning down an idea. I was going to ask if you were going to take a run at the bank, but we'll we'll keep that for another conversation. (laughs) That's another conversation, you know. Uh, But those are the things where you look at and you go, yeah, so, so QM. I was fortunate enough to be able to, A, have the cash at the time to buy it. Because if I had to borrow it, they said no. So everybody would have said no. So I had the cash at the time to buy it. But I also have the skills and the patience to be able to turn it around and to be able to now look at it to say, okay, what's next? What's the next opportunity? You know, um, so QM was in that boat. I bought a hotel in St. Lucia. And literally the hotel, I invested in it and uh, it went into trouble. I took it over and I literally moved myself to the island of St. Lucia for two months. And I committed myself that it's going to open in a certain date and that date that opened. And I fired three sets of management uh, after starting to operate it and t- until finally I got a superstar management team that just lights out with the asset. But everybody told me when I invested in that business, it was a bad idea. Today, they're saying that I'm lucky. And, uh, you know, so we, we will have these opportunities that come to us as entrepreneurs. And again, if we continue to listen to voices that don't have the same experience that we have or the same commitment and drive that we have, we're going to walk away from a ton of opportunities that's presented to us. And they come to us daily, daily. Again, activists. Their job is to find these companies. And fortunately for them, they're a dime a dozen. And that's the reason why there's so many billionaires doing this. Well, Wes, you've been really generous with your time today. And, and we really appreciate you coming to have this conversation with us. And as we come to a close, uh, you're leading and championing a lot of important initiatives. You have your own podcast between us with Wes Hall. 
And you have a new book coming out. We've talked about that. No bootstraps when you're barefoot. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and you know, what you're hoping to do with it. And, and just sort of what do you see as the, the what's next for you in 2022 beyond that? Well, well Duncan, my, my brand is to help underserved people. And uh, because, again, you know, nobody was helping my grandmother when she was raising us all in that tin shack. She did it on her own. And, uh, and she taught me that, uh, I should always think about people that are doing it on their own and they're struggling. And she also taught me this expression to be a first responder. And as first responders, uh, a person who runs into a dangerous situation and bring people out of that dangerous situation. In our case, my grandmother taught me to be a first responder when it comes to poverty that I came out of poverty and my job is to go back in and pull as many people out as I possibly can. And one way to do that is not just to throw money around. One way to do that is to help with knowledge and, uh, and help people with places that's going to be sustainable or things that's going to be sustainable. So for me, I want to continue to support people who are underserved in, in every way it possibly can, whether to help them start businesses, whether it be to help them get educated, whether it be to pave the way for them to be promoted within their own organization because of their hard work, whatever it may be, the brand is to do that. So the Between Us podcast is me sitting down and talking to successful BIPOC people, Black people, Indigenous people, people of color that have had challenges along the way that have worked, that are working through those challenges and bringing that, those stories to people so that they can be inspired. You know, one of the story that I will be bringing next year is this gentleman that, um, he was in, uh, he was in prison and he saw, uh, there was a documentary done on myself and justice Donald McLeod called, uh, black, uh, true black North. And he said, I was sitting in my jail cell and I saw that peace on you guys. And immediately I said to myself, I'm going to get out of prison and I'm going to make something of myself as a result of seeing us. And he reached out to Justice McLeod one day. He saw him on the street and he told him the story and he said, I would love to meet Mr. Hall. So we sat down at Starbucks and I was talking and he told me his story. And he said, Mr. Hall, here's my business as a result of you guys. Here's the business. You know, if you read a newspaper, you hear that the government's spending millions and millions of dollars and fighting crime and putting people in jail and so on. What about spending the money doing things to uplift those people and to make them contribute to society better? This man left prison. Now he's doing his own Jamaican Caribbean restaurant, making his own sauces. It's called Caribbean slice, pizza, you name it. And the pride that he had of being able to do this. He's going to be hiring people. He's, uh, you know, operating in little Jamaica. Those are stories that we need to hear. We don't need to hear stories about somebody getting killed and this is happening. We need to hear stories of people in our community that are doing good things that are giving back to the community because guess what? Those people are in the majority. But yet we hear the stories of the people in the minority. And so my goal with Between Us is to bring those stories to life. Those stories of resilience, 
those stories of positivity. And I'll continue to tell those stories as long as I have the platform to do that. Well, again, Wes, thank you so much for the time you've given us today. Thank you for the great, courageous leadership that you've shown throughout your career, continue to show, and all the wonderful things that you do. I, I look forward to the future where we can all gather together and perhaps one day you and I can go to Caribbean Slice and we can see each other yes. again in person. But uh, yes. But until, until then, thank you so much, Wes. It's just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Duncan, and I'll take you up on that offer for sure. Wes, thank you for your time today and the insights you shared. These are challenging times for businesses working to bring inclusion to life. And I appreciate you talking to us about the challenges and opportunities ahead. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This podcast is a production of the Walrus Lab. Thanks to our producer, Camille Hemming, and to our team here at Deloitte. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Tune into the rest of this season when we will hear from our other inspiring, courageous leaders like Wes. Until then, stay safe and act with courage. Our country needs you.